Well, well, thank you, Luke, but I'm not sure you will be quite so delighted, as you said, to hear me speak again. But I want to say I am, however, delighted to be here in Dublin. I've been here often before, usually um, more socially, holidays, so it's great to be back here. And, of course, the weather is very familiar to me. Um, I'm going to give um, a talk today about policy, not about my research. Um, the title of my talk is Making Science Work, by which I mean how good scientific advice can be given to society and how good decisions can be made about what scientific research should be supported for the public good. And I'm using the term public good in the widest possible sense, covering the contributions that science makes to our culture and also the applications of science that benefit society. Though I'm going to talk more about the second of those topics. Um, benefits such as improving our health and quality of life, securing sustainability and protection of the environment, driving innovation to support our economy. I'm going to begin with making decisions about what scientific research should be supported. As I've just said, my main focus will be on research leading to the applications of science, because it's a trickier area. But it is always important, and I want to say this before I move on, it's always important to remember that scientific knowledge leads to better understanding of ourselves and of the natural world, and is, it is an essential part of our civilization. In this respect, it is, of course, like the humanities. Therefore, science should not be judged solely in a utilitarian manner. This was emphasized by the American physicist, Robert Wilson, who when questioned by the US Congress as to how the Fermilab particle accelerator, that was the big accelerator just outside Chicago, um, the, the predecessor to CERN, how the Fermilab, when he was questioned about how that Fermilab particle accelerator would help national security, he answered, it has nothing to do directly with defending our country, except to make it worth defending. I think we should always remember that. Now, the discovery of new scientific knowledge and the application of scientific knowledge are sometimes presented as being very different from each other. But the fact is that scientific inquiry has always been and should have always been concerned both with acquiring that knowledge and with using that knowledge for the public good. Francis Bacon, the early 17th century, really the first philosopher of science, argued that science improves learning and knowledge and leads to the relief of man's estate. It's the relief of man's estate that we're talking about today. This is an argument reinforced by Robert Hooke, in the middle of the 17th century at the birth of the Royal Society, who emphasized how, and here he was talking about those things that interested him, he emphasized how scientific discoveries concerning motion, light, gravity, magnetism, and the heavens, all current interests for a 17th century scientist, how do they help to improve shipping, watches, optics, and engines for trade and for carriage? Both the discoveries and their applications. Now I want to begin 
by saying something obvious but emphasizing it. That is, there is a continuum from what I like to call discovery science, some people call it basic science or blue skies, I prefer discovery science, which is acquiring new knowledge through research aimed at translating scientific knowledge for application onto subsequent innovation. This spectrum should be considered as being very interactive with knowledge generated at different parts within that continuum, influencing both upstream in the creation of new discoveries, that is towards the discovery end, and downstream, that's towards the application end, in the, in the production of new innovation, new applications. An historic example, a good one, of how investigations downstream, that is near application, can influence research upstream, that is near um, discovery, was work on improving the steam engine, which greatly informed the subsequent formulation of thermodynamics. It was thinking about the, how the steam engine could work more efficiently, a clearly applied project was very inform informative about a very fundamental physics problem that is thermodynamics. And in fact, the, the, the problem had yet to be invented until the steam engine was thought about. Now, it's important to emphasize that this continuum of science spanning discovery through translation to innovation is really a continuum and all of it requires support. Investing too heavily in one part of that spectrum or placing artificial barriers in that continuum or arguing that different parts of the ecosystem are superior to other parts should all be rejected. And I have to say, I've heard this over the now numbers of decades that I've been involved in this, all argued at different times according to um, um, uh, different um, fashions. Science, first of all, to emphasize this, throughout that entire continuum shares the same values, the same skill sets and the same methodologies. Although, as I shall discuss later, there are differences in emphasis in how the research is carried out. <clears throat> now, what factors have to be considered when deciding what scientific research should be supported? Now, a number are important and I'm going to uh, address them. But the one I think is really crucial is the scientist who is carrying out that research. Major discoveries in science are usually associated with highly talented individuals. Highly talented individuals who combine a number of qualities. They need in-depth knowledge, they need to be creative, understand the values of science and how research is done, they need to be well motivated, they need to be effective in achieving what they set out to do. I just want to explore some of those characteristics. In-depth knowledge is, of course, essential, but it does need to be combined with what some have argued is peripheral vision. That is an understanding and openness to what other sciences can contribute, which are outside the major focus of what you're working on. This is especially required when solution of a research problem needs multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary approaches, of course. Now, carrying out good scientific research is a creative activity. And scientists have more similarities than might be imagined with those pursuing other creative activities, such as the arts, humanities, writing, and the media. And like other creative workers, scientists thrive on freedom, and organizing them is like 
herding cats. I'm fully aware of this because I've done a lot of organizing of them in my life and I generally have failed. But I want to emphasize the other characteristic, freedom, freedom of thought. Freedom to pursue a line of investigation wherever it may lead, to uncover uncomfortable truths are crucial to an effective scientific endeavor. A scientist whose thoughts are restrained or who is too strongly directed or who is unable to freely exchange ideas will not be an effective scientist. Similarly, and this is more controversial, similarly, societies that are not free and that do not encourage the free exchange of ideas or respect the values of science cannot be leading scientific powers, in my opinion, because that freedom is deeply connected with the creativity required for good science. And I think it's something we need to keep in mind, particularly when we um, discuss the emergence of new science powers. Scientists need to embrace the values of science, to have respect for reliable and reproducible data, a skeptical approach which challenges orthodoxy and in particular the scientists own ideas. I always argue to my students be the greatest enemy of your own ideas. They need an abhorrence of the falsification or cherry picking of data and a commitment to the pursuit of truth. Scientific research is hard and to be effective, researchers need to be very highly motivated. Now, often this motivation is provided by a passionate curiosity about the natural world, a desire to know how things work or how they can be directed to achieve particular outcomes. But other motivations can also be important. A desire to undertake public good through the eradication of disease, for example, to make something useful, to create economic wealth, or simply to become famous. Although I don't recommend you take up science if you want to be famous, and mostly if you want to make yourself rich, because it's not very usual. But whatever the motivation, it needs to be strong because the pursuit of research is long and it is difficult. So in deciding what research should be supported, much attention needs to be paid to the scientists carrying out the work and as far as possible, decisions about uh, research projects should be closely associated in addition with assessments of the individuals proposing the project of work. Now, given this emphasis that I'm giving on the primacy of the individuals carrying out the research, decisions should be guided by the effectiveness of the researchers making the proposal. The most useful and simple criterion for effectiveness is immediate past achievement. Those that have recently carried out high quality research are most likely in the short to medium term, at least, to continue to do so. In coming to research funding decisions, I want to emphasize the objective is not to support those who write good quality grant proposals, but those who will carry out good quality research. 
I mean, I realize, of course, proposals are a surrogate for that, but you have to have clear in your mind that is what you're trying to achieve. So attention needs to be given to performance rather than simply planned activities. Now, obviously, such an emphasis needs to be tempered when assessing those who have only a limited recent past record, early career researchers, for example, or those who have had breaks in their careers. Now, in these cases, you really need to make more use of face-to-face -face interviews, which are very helpful in determining the quality of the researcher making the application. I call um, this process of doing this um, coping with the bullshit factor. The bullshit factor is very easy to um, hide when you're writing and much less easy to deal with face-to-face -face across the table. Um, the greater costs involved in direct interviews will be more than compensated by the greater quality of the decisions that will be made. But when we're under pressure all the time to reduce what is seen as worthless overhead, and so cut out, for example, face-to-face -face interviews, you lose the objective, and the objective is to make good quality decisions. And um, it's good quality decisions that are made during this process. So I'm saying making good decisions about research funding requires a focus on the quality, passion and past performance of the scientists proposing the research as well as the research proposal itself. In other words, these should be linked. And this will be relevant to some things I'm about to say. Now, a perennially vexing question, and it's a difficult one, is how prescriptive research funding agencies should be <clears throat> in determining what research areas should be supported. Now, this recurring issue arises because of tensions between scientists wanting the freedom to decide what projects they want they should pursue and society which legitimately supports science not simply as a cultural activity, increasing knowledge, but as an activity aimed at improving the lot of humankind through achieving specific useful objectives. Sometimes my more idealistic colleagues, I'm idealistic myself, but in a different sort of way, say, well, we should be supported simply for what we contribute to culture. I usually respond by saying, if you make that argument, you'll get the same amount of support as goes in your local opera house. And I tell you, that isn't going to be much compared with how much science is costing. Now, one quite frequent response of funding agencies faced with this particular issue sounds very sensible but does have problems and it goes something like this they will carry out a strategic review to decide priorities and identify research areas judged either as being especially timely for future advances or reflecting particular needs for society. This can lead to initiatives that shape or sponsor research, sometimes with ring-fenced allocations of research funding. Although well-intentioned and really trying to address an important problem, these approaches do have certain issues, certain problems. One problem is that the decisions are separated from consideration both of the project and of the scientists carrying out that project. If you ring fence too tightly a particular project before you're thinking who is going to do it, then you lose um, what I think is a very important part of making the decision. And there's a risk as a consequence of that, that these initiatives may attract less creative and less effective scientists who are tempted simply to follow where resources are being made available rather than 
pursuing what they think will be the most effective and creative activity for them. A second problem is that the identification of what are favored and non-favored research areas is unfortunately usually made by committees made up of people like me. That is, senior researchers, silverbacks I call ourselves, often white-haired, and these senior researchers quite often not particularly research active themselves anymore, at least not at the highest level. And unfortunately, such committees are prone to coming up with the rather obvious, being behind the cutting edge, and therefore not effective. Better judgments are usually made closer to the scientists who are actually carrying out the research. Now, these are issues, and um, uh, as I said, the, uh, doing this sort of approach is legitimate, and, um, but you have to be very careful about it. So how can you um, resolve this difficult tension? Well, I'm not sure how we resolve it, frankly, having thought about it for a long time. Um, but I think there's three issues that are relevant and I want to share with you. The first is the um, Haldane um, principle, or rather what we understand the Haldane principle uh, to be. The second is a, a different approach when considering programs aimed at achieving specific applications and, and goals. And thirdly, a more imaginative role for scientific leadership in funding. So I'm going to go through each of those three areas. First, the Haldane principle. Um, Haldane was originally a civil servant, actually, in, in, in England, and it's usually interpreted as meaning that researchers and not politicians should decide how to spend funds, although the original Haldane report actually made no reference to any such specific principle, but for some reason it's entered the language and most people know what it means. Um, the idea is that politicians, informed by external advice, should decide on the overall science budget and identify key priorities, such as specific challenges or key infrastructures, but should not be involved in decisions on specific funding proposals, which should be made um, using peer review. Now, that's reasonably well accepted by most um, societies carrying this out. I'd like to extend the principle behind this view a little further by arguing more generally that decisions should always be made as close as possible to the researchers actually carrying out the research, rather than in a distant way. Those leading research funding bodies should focus their attention more on high-level priorities and avoid the temptation to be too prescriptive and finely grained in their recommendations concerning what areas should be funded. And that should be less, as I said, to those closer to the research. Now, the point I'm, going, I'm making here, I'm going to illustrate more by a metaphor derived from geographical exploration, for example, in the 19th century. Now, at that time, the Royal Geographical Society, for example, based in London, might decide it wants to support an expedition. And it could decide that that um, expedition could explore the Amazon basin, the source of the Nile, or the Antarctic, for example. But such a um, society based in London would be ill-advised to be too fine-grained in its deliberations by specifying which Amazon tributary or African lake or South Polar glacier, for example, should be the focus of attention. That should be left to the explorer on 
the ground, not those sitting in London. The funder's role should be to define the general geographical region of interest, identify the best explorer, properly equip that explorer, and then release them so they can be most effective in the field. And I argue that on the whole, research funders should behave in a rather similar way. They should put their trust most in the explorer scientists carrying out the research rather than the committee in London. And as far as possible, the research funding decisions should be driven um, by the quality of those scientists carrying out the, their work. However, this approach does need some modification when a research program is directed at achieving specific goals or application. In other words, um, I'm, I'm arguing you have a continuum of research, but you have to have a more nuanced approach to funding decisions in different parts of that um, continuum. In fact, goal-directed research, which I'm referring to here, can occur uh, anywhere in that, in, that, um, in that scientific spectrum. I mean, we tend to think of it more at the applied end. But for example, genome sequencing would be an example um, of a goal-directed research at the discovery end of, 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 of research. Now, it is, in my view, necessary and valuable to identify sectors that should be supported when they are close to application. However, identification of sectors worthy of support should still be fairly broadly scoped and involve those carrying out the research and for that matter, those who want to use the outcome of the research being supported. In other words, there needs to be a close connection between those that want the research done and those that are actually being supported. Now, <clears throat> such a more prescriptive approach, as I've said, applies to research close to application particularly and it applies, incidentally, both for profit activities, which is the normal way it's sort of discussed, but also um, for um, not-for-profit activities, um, which are applied in nature, such as improving health and protecting the environment. They are goal-directed, and it's the same type of logic you have to think there. More prescriptive approaches are required in discovery research, um, particularly when assembling large data sets when you don't want to duplicate work being carried out by other people. So that would include genome sequences, meteorological data or astronomical data, for example. It also applies when society needs to invest in large infrastructure, um, in infrastructures such as particle accelerators. Clearly you have to have some top-down um, process there. All the time, notice how I'm arguing for nuanced approaches that vary according to where you are and what you're trying to uh, achieve. But even in these prescriptive um, approaches, they always have to be driven by quality. Quality, excellence is essential. Third issue I'd like to cover here concerns um, scientific leadership. Now, if after getting good advice, a research funding leader decides that a particular research area is important and should receive more support, I suggest rather than simply ring-fencing resources, which is one approach and perhaps the most common one, it would be also useful to undertake a process of education and inspiration of researchers so they become interested and motivated to work in that area. Should the area really be as promising as is thought, then it will be easy to actually um, uh, argue 
um, and persuade high-quality scientists um, that this is worth uh, thinking about. If, on the other hand, it's not so interesting, then high-quality researchers will be less impressed and less likely to submit proposals. And in this case, the research leader needs to think again um, as to whether their enthusiasm for this may be not as well-placed as they thought. In short, research leaders do need to be proactive, but not always by ring-fencing or micromanagement of the research agenda, but by educating and inspiring the research community. In other words, you don't just want managers, you want managers who are leaders, and leaders who can inspire and motivate scientists to work in areas of interest. Now, are there other special features concerning decisions making uh, with respect to science closer to application? Now, I've already said science across the whole continuum shares many similarities. However, work closer to application is on the whole more likely to be multidisciplinary and may well require greater teamwork. Not only covering more scientific disciplines, for example, but also activities outside science, including finance, market analysis and the law. It requires a great deal of effort to get individuals from such diverse backgrounds to work well together. And attention needs to be paid to encouraging mutual respect and to breaking down barriers between these different sectors. There needs to be much greater permeability between sectors, both in the transfer of ideas and also the transfer of um, people. And they need to occur more freely. I feel today we have in place too many barriers and silos that inhibit the free transfer and between these sectors and in, even encouraging suspicion between the very people that need to be working closely together. I think these are real blocks in translation and innovation. Now, one of the reasons we have this problem is that increasing knowledge, and we have really increased our knowledge, I mean, make no mistake about it, increasing knowledge has led to specialization, making interactions between different scientists, industry, the public services, and other professions more difficult. It was easier in earlier times to make such contacts in less complex societies. And I'm thinking particularly at the time of the Industrial Revolution. Take the Lunar Society, for example. The Lunar Society operated in England, in the Midlands, not in Oxford and Cambridge, which at the time, incidentally, were pretty hopeless anyway, and certainly not in London. They were up there in the Midlands, near the Potteries, Litchfield. It was made up, the Lunar Society, of chemists, biologists, doctors, industrialists, engineers, social reformers, entrepreneurs, regularly meeting every month under the full moon, which is why it was called the Lunar Society, under the full moon to talk and to exchange ideas. It included intellectuals and entrepreneurs such as James Watt of the steam engine, Josiah Wedgwood of pottery, and Erasmus Darwin, Charles Darwin's grandfather, and by the way, if you're not familiar with him, an infinitely interesting person, rather more colourful than Charles. For example, he was a very fat man, and to get close to his food, he had an oval cut out of his dining table so that he could actually eat more effectively. 
Desmond Helley has written a number, two um, biographies, very, very interesting. It was in this atmosphere of all these different people that the Industrial Revolution prospered. And I think we should do our best to try and reproduce that again today. And greater permeability is required, greater mixing at all career stages um, with easy exchanges. It's a key message. The promotion of translation and innovation, which is difficult, requires good permeability across all these sectors. Much is spoken about the valley of death. The gap between the generation of new knowledge and the application of that new knowledge, particularly for commercialization, but in principle for applications. Usually the focus of such discussions is on providing um, research support, money, to bridge that gap. But in my view, attention also needs to be paid to other factors, particularly in pushing the bridgeheads further out into the valley, if I can continue to use the metaphor. There can be a problem when attempts to translate are made too prematurely before knowledge is sufficiently reliable and complete. And this is especially the case in the biosciences, given the complexity of living organisms. If you'll forgive my um, cinematic um, uh, pun here, to rush into translation runs the risk of becoming lost in translation. What I'm trying to argue here is that you need a secure, firmer bridgehead um, to be extended out into that valley before attempting to pass over the valley of death. And I have a particular reason for saying it. <clears throat> when you're doing a research project, um, you will have ideas and you will aim towards where you think it's taking you. It could be to the back of the room. Um, if you're undertaking a translational project, then your objective is to reach the back of the room. If you're carrying out a discovery project, your objective is to reach somewhere, not necessarily the back of the room. So when the next observations or experiments take you not towards the back of the room, but to the side of the room, if you're carrying out a discovery research project, you correct where you're thinking of the interest, you take note of the experiments and the observations, and you move towards these books that are over here, and then you may end up actually being ending up in that chair eventually, but you've discovered something, you've discovered the chair. When, on the other hand, you have an objective, psychologically, you don't want to be moved over there, and you have much greater trouble accommodating the pressures that take you off your objective. What I'm trying to say is, that it's more difficult carrying out translational projects than discovery projects, I'm sure of that. And part of it is the psychological reasons that you want a certain objective and maybe nature doesn't want to take you to that objective. And that's one of the reasons why I think translation is often very um, inefficient and why often um, money um, can be wasted in doing that. And I think this is a particular problem in the biosciences where um, the problems are very complex. It's easier in the physical sciences, and that may be one of the reasons why it's been more straightforward to translate in the physical sciences. Now, I've been talking about bridgeheads, bridgeheads on one side of the valley of the death. I also think there should be bridgeheads on the other side of the valley of death, on the application side, on the commercial side, um, uh, so that there is more investment from industry in research aimed at capturing the new knowledge from the other side of the valley. 
Without research capacity, capability and knowledge in industry, it's difficult to build back over the valley of death. And the reason I want to emphasize that is I don't think it's sufficient in industry simply to scan the research papers. You actually have to understand the research endeavor to recognize good research on the other side. And I think that's another uh, problem when what I feel is a rather simple-minded view is, oh, uh, we'll just capture the research when it comes from the other side. You have to have capacity and capability on the other side of the valley of death as well. I didn't really want to have to say this, but I think it's time to turn to impact. Researchers all want their research to have impact. Let's just start with that. Who wants to do research that has no impact? Impact, of course, means different things. You want impact to increase, you want to have research with impact um, to increase knowledge. You want to do something important that's new. You want to contribute to the culture, as I said. You want to generate societal benefit. You want to support the economy. No researcher doesn't want to do those things. We want impact. I think the problems come when two simple-minded and crude metrical applications of impact are made a compulsory part of research funding, decisions and assessments. My view is rather simple. The potential impact of research should be clearly identified if it makes sense to do so, but it does not always make sense to do so. And did to demand a statement in every research proposal or assessment about um, impact, for example, for societal or economic um, benefit, will often simply result in unhelpful flights of fantasy of no value. Now, I know this to be true because I'm really expert at doing it myself. But I'm only arguing impact is really important of this type. I just say, ask for it and you will get it if it makes sense, but do not demand it if it doesn't. And please don't allocate a certain percentage which is allocated to that. What you have to do is have a more nuanced approach. Of course, if research is close to application, that's different. I'm talking that we have to have different ways of approaching it, depending on where you are within the um, continuum. Now, funding high quality research. Let me just summarize where we are. It will for certain produce the knowledge needed for the public good, including um, driving innovation to support the economy, to get new jobs. Get it right, then science will play the proper role for the benefit of society, but getting it wrong will run the risk of wasting money and losing the opportunities science can play to improve the lot of humankind. And in summary, I'm, I'm just arguing for subtle and nuanced approaches depending on what you're trying to do and not to think one size glove fits all. I should also emphasize, if it's not clear, that I think we need to support across that whole continuum. And the risks of, of emphasizing too much discovery research or too much immediate application or too much translation is really a risk. And society at different times can actually be pulled in different directions. And in my life, I've probably seen the emphasis in each one of those places um, being put um, too, um, too strongly. Now, let me move to the second topic, and you'll be very pleased to hear it's a quite a lot shorter than the first one. So um, please don't get too nervous. 
Um, and that is um, science policy advice, because benefits for society also require giving high quality advice to policymakers and to the public in general. And to introduce this, I, I just want to spend a minute or two talking about what science is, because it's important to know that um, when thinking about giving scientific advice. So this may not sound relevant, but it is. So good science is, of course, a reliable way of generating knowledge, and that is the case because of the way it's done. It's based on reproducible observation and experiment, taking account of all evidence and not cherry-picking data. Scientific issues should be settled by the overall strength of evidence combined with rational, consistent and objective argument. I said should be settled by that, but in my experience, it's usually best settled when one of the opponents dies rather than um, any other way. Central to science is the ability to prove that something is not true. Proving something is true is altogether a more difficult problem. And this attribute of trying to prove something is not true is an attribute which on the whole distinguishes science from beliefs based on religions and ideologies, which place more emphasis on faith, tradition and opinion. Good scientists are inherently sceptical, particularly of their own ideas. If an observation or an experimental result does not support a specific idea, then that idea has to be rejected or modified and then tested again. It's a little bit to do with going to the back of the hall or the side of the hall. Sometimes scientific knowledge is quite tentative, especially at early stages of an investigation, a scientific investigation. It is only after repeated successful testing that knowledge becomes more secure and more reliable. And I think it's a failure to fully understand this process that can lead to problems when scientists are called upon to give advice on scientific issues. Because we teach science to um, our pupils in schools as if it's chiseled in granite. We teach science like Newton's laws of motion. And actual scientific research that's being carried on today is often not as secure as that. It is often tentative knowledge and it will change as you get more data and better argument. And that means that science can be uncertain. And sometimes science society wants clear and simple answers to problems when it is simply not possible to provide them. And that's an issue which is central and core to um, science policy, because what comes with that is an understanding of risks and probabilities and where you are and, where, and, whether, and what you know. So, where do we go? Scientific advice, in my view, should be based on the consensus view of scientists, experts in the areas concerned, who are fully aware of conflicting explanations and of the evidence upon which these explanations are based. As a further check, this advice needs to be challenged through peer review, carried out by other expert scientists to ensure that the conclusions reached are reliable and secure. If there is no strong consensus, or if knowledge is still tentative, then these uncertainties should be reflected in the advice. Now, sometimes when I argue that, people say, what about Galileo? What about Galileo? Because they think that he was outside the consensus. That isn't true. 
Galileo was suppressed, not because of the consensus of scientists, but because the society or the um, powers within that society wanted to suppress the science. When there is a revolutionary change in science, it may take a little while for that to be accepted, but on the whole, the problem is not the consensus of the expert scientists, it is the problems with the society that doesn't like the sometimes revolutionary and uncomfortable conclusions that scientists lead us to. The moving of the Earth from the center of the universe is one such example. We're now just a speck in the arm of an insignificant galaxy amongst um, uh, a billion other galaxies and maybe another billion universes. And the movement of uh, humankind from being especially created, different from the rest of the biosphere, the moving us from that special position to being just related to all the rest of life around us was also deeply unsettling. The point I'm making is that, of course, there were scientific e issues around these um, big changes, but the primary reason for the problems are to do with society and non-scientific reasons. Now, what I've just said there is you need expert consensus opinion. And the conclusions I've said there, I think are probably relatively uncontroversial. However, what makes giving scientific advice more complex is the fact that the science, uh, is the fact that the advice is being used to inform public policy. And the development of policy is not based solely on science, but on a wide range of societal considerations and opinions, not all of which are as evidence-based or as rational as science. And it's when the lines between these two areas, the science and the societal um, uh, influences, when the lines between these two become blurred, the science can become mired in controversy, and that's not good either for the science or the development of good public policy. Given these complexities, I want to consider two controversial areas to see what lessons can be learnt about providing advice to society. One controversial area is climate science. Is the world warming? Is human activity responsible? How much is it expected to warm in the future? Now, the consensus view of the great majority of expert climate scientists is that the globe has increased in temperature by around 0.7 to 0.8 degrees centigrade in the last century, that this is largely due to increased greenhouse gas emissions, and these are caused as a consequence um, largely of human activity. And finally, that a further rise of around two degrees or perhaps as much as four degrees um, can be expected during the next century. That would be the major uh, consensus view. Now, within that mainstream consensus view, there is quite a lot of continuing debate about aspects of the science, particularly the difficult issue of predicting exact future temperature changes, given the complexities of the feedbacks within the global climate system. And those, those problems, those, those doubts, those um, differences absolutely need to be discussed. But we should also be aware that there are those who have far more extreme opinions that lay outside this mainstream view. At one end, it is argued by some that um, warming is not taking place, that human agency has no or very limited effect, and that there will be no warming in the future, often called a denialist view. At the other end, 
It is argued that global warming during the next century will be far more extreme, up to 10 degrees or 12 degrees centigrade, for example, often called the uh, catastrophic view. And there are supporters of both these more extreme positions in the public sphere, but it's perhaps the former arguments of the denialists that have gained more traction, at least in some quarters, and sometimes even amongst some of those who would normally respect consensus expert scientific opinion and analysis. Now, why is this the case? A feature of this controversy is that those who deny that there is a problem often seem to have political or ideological views that lead them to be unhappy with the actions that would be necessary if global warming is taking place and if it is due to human activity. In other words, they don't like having to deal with what might have to be done should it be happening. Now, these actions are actually um, ones that one has to be um, very, very concerned about. They are likely to include measures um, such as greater concerted world action that could curtail the freedom of individuals, companies and nations and would curb some kinds of industrial activity, potentially risking economic growth. So these are significant issues. But what appears to be happening is that the concerns of those who are worried about these types of actions have led them not simply to discuss these concerns, but to try and undermine the science that leads you to the conclusion that we have a problem. And they try to use science to do that, science that is nearly always weak and unconvincing and involves the cherry-picking of data. Now, several other features have complicated this situation. One has been a failure of some climate scientists to be as open as they should have been in making their data all available. This has led some to deny that there's a problem by claiming that the climate scientist data is wrong or has been manipulated. And we see that often in the blogosphere. Another feature is the complexity of climate science, which leads to uncertainties. In a world where people want simple answers, uncertainty does not appeal. And this allows space for poorly evidenced but confidently stated opinions which are often mixed with personal attacks and misrepresentations to attract public and political attention. This is not useful for good debate about science informing public policy. What can we learn from this? Firstly, it reinforces um, the importance that we need to rely on the consensus view of expert scientists and we need to avoid cherry picking of data and argument. It also emphasizes the need to keep the science as far as possible from political, ideological, and religious influence. I argue first the science, then the politics. The politics is important. Maybe you want to say, well, that is the science, but for these other political, ideological reasons, whatever, we don't want to uh, take account of it. I think that's irrational, but at least it's honest. What isn't honest, in fact, deeply dishonest, is to attack the science inappropriately simply to make your political argument. And that's really what um, I think is um, a mistake. Now, it can be difficult for scientists to keep science separate from politics and ideologies because we are only human. I understand that, but that's really what we have to strive for. A second controversial area has been um, genetically modified 
organism, GM foods. This, that is the introduction um, of genes by genetic engineering into crop plants. Now, the consensus view here of the majority of expert plant scientists is that this is in principle a safe approach and can lead to considerable benefits. Some of them commercial, reducing um, uh, food spoilage during transport, but maybe also helping tackle global problems such as world hunger and increasing crop yields and exploiting more marginal habitats. Such scientists would also argue that there always, of course, need to be precautionary checks in place um, to test a, a particular crop. But in general, these should be similar to those used for conventional crop plants, and they should be a case-by-case -case specific plant basis to determine safety and effectiveness. Now, this consensus scientific view has been accepted largely by the public in some countries, but in others, it is not. Again, why is this the case? Now, in my view, the key features of this controversy are people's sensitivities about what they eat, concerns about scientists playing at God, and worries about the influence of overbearing commercial interests. And these have converged to generate among some deep suspicion about GM foods. Now, let's consider these. Human beings have a tendency to be conservative even fearful about what their food contains. Um, I came from um, a working class family. Um, I was brought up in northwest London. I went to university and I had no money. I went to university in Birmingham and I lived for my first term largely on um, the Indian curries at my local Indian restaurant. When I went back home at Christmas, I was so excited by Indian food, I took my parents out to an Indian restaurant to taste the curry. It was a complete, total disaster. They simply were so suspicious about what they, um, I was asking them to eat. Now, they're conservative. One anxiety I noticed, because I got involved in public consultation about GM um, crops, which was the most frequent one expressed by the public. I don't mean NGOs who, who take a special interest here, but by the public was that they had great concern at eating food which contained genes. Now, I say that because it's not something that a scientist would think about, you know? Um, we're unlikely to have considered it, but frankly, it was perfectly reasonable one for the member of the public, not particularly familiar with these things, to actually express. The problem was we didn't know it was a concern. We'd never bothered to ask them. The problem was made worse, of course, by newspaper headlines um, calling GM crops Frankenstein foods, conjuring up images of white-coated scientists, as I said, playing at God and tampering with the purity of food. You know, it's like fluoridation of water and tooth decay and things of that sort. Now, another feature important here is often those who object to GM have political or ideological opinions, the opposite of those in climate um, change problem, which dislike the power yielded by powerful commercial corporations behind the manufacture of certain GM crops. These anti-GM opinions have been adopted by some environmental NGOs who campaign against the use of GM crops, even when their use is aimed at reducing uh, vitamin deficiency in children, for example, something that would be seen. Um, so Greenpeace, for example, argues to trash um, such trials. So what can we learn? 
from this issue over GM crops. First, it's clear that there's been a failure to properly engage the public and pay attention to what they say. That is, we do not know always what the problems are they want considered. Scientists have to listen to the public to be aware of their concerns. Scientists and single interest pressure groups are not always the best individuals to frame the questions that should be asked. The public needs to be involved there. Secondly, there needs to be high quality debate in the media and scientists need to be part of that debate from the very beginning to ensure it's based on evidence and rational argument rather than ideology or politics. Thirdly, scientific advice is best delivered by scientists who are impartial or as impartial as they can be. And it shouldn't rely on those that may have other motives, as may be the case for a company trying to promote the use of GM, or for that matter, NGOs attacking GM, who rely on the support of individuals financially who are ideologically opposed to such technologies. There is no high moral ground here, even though some may try to occupy it. An important question is what groups of scientists and scientific bodies can be relied on for giving advice to the public. It's obvious that it's best to involve those who are expert in the area. It can also be useful to engage um, scientific generalists who understand good science but are also familiar with science policy issues. It's also helpful to have um, expert scientists who can peer review the original advice, separate scientists. But the corollaries are also true, and that's what I want to emphasize. Those who are not expert, for example, newspaper columnists, and cannot properly assess, sorry, some newspaper columnists, let, let's be fair, um, and cannot properly assess the relevant specialist evidence, are unlikely to be appropriate. Scientists, scientists giving advice need to be open and impartial. They mustn't cherry pick and they need to explain the range of possibilities and the probabilities associated with them. And they also need to explain things in ways that the public will understand. Now, a range of different bodies offer scientific advice on policy issues. So what are the characteristics? This is a matter of trust. What are the characteristics of those bodies that should be trusted? Now, it's always useful, frankly, to look at the scientific advice from a range of bodies, even those are are not to be trusted that much because it's good to be exposed to a range of opinions. I'm rather open about it. However, one has to titrate in which ones you take notice of. Some bodies and some types of bodies are going to be more reliable, however. And in general, the characteristics to look for are as follows. They should be broadly based. They shouldn't be a single interest group. They should be impartial. In other words, they shouldn't gain financially or whatever by doing it. They need to understand the methods and values of science. They should be respectful of openness. They should carry out proper peer review. More specialist organizations with specific objectives, such as lobbying groups, a commercial company, a single interest NGO, they will find it more difficult to be impartial. And a company concerned about its income, an NGO about the views of its supporters, may find it difficult to be completely objective. Sometimes scientific advice is given by more shadowy organizations who will not declare where their support comes from for their policy work. These are more likely to be acting as lobby groups without revealing for whom or for what they are lobbying and should not be relied on for advice. 
Similarly, and this is a really good feature, organizations or people who are bombastic, who resort to personal attacks and misrepresentation, are likely to be doing so because they've lost the scientific argument and their scientific advice should be treated with caution. I'm saying that actually, I, this is really a very simple and useful one. If the blog is rude, ignore it. It's very simple. If it's rude, ignore it. So what is good practice? Scientific advice should be based on the totality of observation, be rational, reflect consensus views of experts, and be peer-reviewed. If there's no strong consensus or if knowledge is tentative, these uncertainties need to be reflected in the advice. The science should be kept separate from politics, ideology, and religion. It will require public engagement to make sure the proper questions are framed. Scientists need to be involved early on in the outset of a public debate. And finally, bodies who are trusted should be broadly based, impartial, understand science, and be open about the sources of income and conflicts of interest in policy work. These attributes generally apply to national academies, such as this one here, or for that matter, the Royal Society, who has been providing such advice quite well for over 350 years. If we combine good scientific advice with good decisions about what scientific research should be supported, and if also, and I haven't discussed this tonight, if we also make sure there are sufficient resources and funding for that research, then science will work well for us. It will work well for our culture, our health, our quality of life, for protecting our environment and for driving our economies. Thank you very much. Thank you.